Speak, O Lord. That's our prayer as our brother Jim Adams comes to speak to us. He's going to speak to us from the scriptures. And we're asking the Holy Spirit to use our brother as he brings God's holy word to us to speak to us. To bring to us his truth that he would press upon us, illumine our minds with and and, uh, engage our hearts and capture our wills for his glory. Brother Jim Adams has been a dear friend for a lot of years, pastor of the Cornerstone Bible Fellowship in Mesa, Arizona, and uh, we thank the Lord for him, don't we? We do thank the Lord for him and Nancy, their faithful service to Jesus Christ among us. Doctor, Pastor, Jaime Adams, come. Preach the word of God to us. What joy to hear that music this evening. Exegete God's word. It was beautiful to have some of those texts open up to us. This evening, I would ask you to go with me to an intriguing passage of scripture that has really impacted my worship with the awe of God. Some 43 years ago, almost to the day, on a university campus in this very city, the first coordinator of ARBCA preached from this passage to an audience of some 7,000 students and parents. In the days and years to follow, I believe God used David Straub in the lives of many, even many here this evening. I'd ask you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5. My mission this evening, and I've accepted it really with trembling, is to continue to explore with you a biblical vision for a balanced church. We're delving tonight into this passage to find out how the Holy Spirit makes a congregation vibrant and joyful in the service of our great King. Like many of you, I serve in a church that's in the city, and we're really surrounded by mega churches. And I don't mean by mega churches just that they're large, but it's a whole philosophy of ministry. So as we come to this passage I would think of these mega churches, they seem to have it all together, don't they? It's almost like they talk constantly about the Holy Spirit, about prayer, about fellowship, and all these things, even what we've been talking of this very, these very days. Let's remember that we're not in competition with them. Our commission is to obey our Lord, our Master. He's the one we serve within his body, the church. And Paul reminds us that there is but one body and one spirit, not many. Recently, just in these few days before coming here, we had a man in the congregation that suddenly he couldn't walk straight. He would veer off to the left and uh, uh, couldn't get up and get moving unless he would veer to the left. And... uh, Obviously, they took tests and everything, and they found that uh, somehow or another there had been a disconnect between his brain and the rest of his body. Though he had good legs and good arms and all was ready to work, he would veer to the left. 
And as we would look at this this evening, I would ask you to keep that in mind, how the head is that which gives balance to the whole of the body. It occurred to me as we were coming together for that very theme that we can have all the functioning parts of arms and legs, even apostolic doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer, but we're always off balance if we're not vitally joined to Jesus Christ. Without Him, we can do nothing. As we read this chapter, remember the Lord Christ had confronted those seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Churches that are not unlike churches all over the world and down through the centuries. Then God calls John and the Spirit to focus on a scene in heaven. God seated on his throne, surrounded by the church and his holy angels. We're really given something of a glimpse into heaven's throne room. And our eyes can mentally gaze on this amazing portrait of God and his redeemed in glory. Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth Worship them. This is God's word. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. With your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, in a loud voice, they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain 
to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, Amen, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do believe that which will give balance to us as churches, that which you have ordained to give us that energy that we need as your people is to see and to know your majesty to see and to trust in the one who is the lion of the tribe of Judah. O Lord, grant us this evening something of the reality of his presence, for we ask in Christ's name. Amen. I'd ask that as we look a little closer at what we have here, that we'd see something of the church's weeping that's turned to joy. And then to look at the worship of the church here in this passage, and then something of the doctrine and the goals that we find here of the church. First, look with me at the weeping of the church. John's eyes are drawn to the scroll in the right hand of the one who is on the throne. It's a scroll of unparalleled significance. The scroll sealed with these seven seals represents the wonderful promises and plan of God to redeem a groaning world. I believe we have here what is all the very promises of God, his great plan, that which is the destiny of all creation. But its contents are hidden from John. The whole purpose and plan of all history is a mystery. It's closed, it's sealed with those seven seals. But then the strong angel challenges the whole of creation. Who is worthy to open the scroll? Who is worthy to reveal God's plan? Who is worthy to carry out God's plan of redemption? Who deserves? Who deserves to receive from the Father all authority in heaven and earth, who is able to make the kingdom of this world the kingdom of the Lord and his Christ? Among all the creatures in heaven and on earth and under it, no one can step forward and claim the ability to do God's will. Verse 3 tells us that. And suddenly it's almost like there's a, a challenge given to all the world leaders, all the CEOs, all the, the multi-billionaires, all the power brokers of the whole of the world. And they're all weak. They're unable. They're all full of promises, but they're exposed in their weakness and their uselessness. In a sense, these words resound down through the ages. The ultimate challenge who is worthy? 
There is this weeping that you find here with John. He says, and I began to weep loudly. The situation is that which we would say desperate. Today's mega churches should be weeping and seeking power from above. But they say what we need is more entertainment, more sensitivity to what people want. More innovative technology, more famous personalities. Oh, that's the great secret of the church growth conferences. They call us to come and somehow or another from them we'll learn how it all comes together. The world weeps today when people realize that all these promises, all this hope for change, whether political or ecclesiastical, they all turn up empty. Promises, promises. In Mesa, Arizona, Cornerstone sits in the middle of a city that uh, really was founded, pioneers, Latter-day Saints, as they call themselves, the Mormon Church. It's the mega church, the richest church in all America now. It seems to have it all with entertainment, organization, big bucks, buildings, music, drama, programs, even mystical experiences. They have it all put together. But they lack that one great essential, the living God. The Bible is blunt. Man's whole history is a fatal flaw. We've failed as a human race. The reality is no one is able. No one is worthy. No one is able to bring peace and salvation in this world. Whatever all the peace accords, all the agreements, every one that's worked towards it all, no one can open the scroll. There's a certain suspense in all this of who is worthy as John weeps loudly. Then the silence and suspense are broken by a strong voice of one of the elders. Isn't that a, a word that's powerful? Weep not. What a word that comes. Weep not. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David's tree, has conquered. He can open the scroll and its seven seals. He can rip those seven seals. Many centuries before, Isaiah had foreseen that fresh shoot from the stump of David's father Jesse, a fruitful branch springing from a root that seemed dead and hopeless. God promised the coming one who would be, yes, called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. God had whispered countless promises down through all these many generations. Then, after 400 years of silence, the New Testament begins with a careful record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Matthew gives us this 
that in this that in this anointed king, son of David, son of Abraham, son of Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, yes, in this Jesus, all of God's promises come to fulfillment. The supreme solution to John's awful dilemma, Judah's lion king. He is the victor worthy to open the scroll and carry out God's plan. Then you remember, though, when he turns, John turns to see the voice. He finds another surprise, a lamb looking as if it had been slain, yet standing the conquering lion. The one who is with such great power, the king of Judah's tribe and David's royal line, champion of God's people over his enemies and theirs, John sees him. What a shock it must have been. Who is this? Here in the lion lamb, God gives us the portrait, the portrait of the great redemptive story of the church of Jesus Christ. This one is the hermeneutic of the whole of redemption. Jesus Christ. Don't you find that even in our churches that people are always wanting something more than Christ? Somehow or another, we have to teach constantly that there's no room in the Jesus, in the church of Jesus Christ for something more than Christ. He is the standard of all standards, the rule of all rules, the authority of all authority. Adam, our original head, fell into sin at the serpent's urging. But the lion of the tribe of Judah has overcome our old enemy. The conqueror is worthy. We confess with sorrow. I am unworthy, not just unable, but unworthy to carry out God's plan of redemption. But we not. One who has gone before me, the lion of the tribe of Judah. One who has gone before all of us, the Lamb of God. He has triumphed. Let's look just for a few moments at the worship of the church. With this triumphant lion lamb, let's look and see what we have in chapters 4 and 5. These five great doxologies. When I read aloud chapters 4 and 5, I find myself worshiping the true God. I can't sing these doxologies. What singing we had tonight exegeting these passages of Scripture, telling forth the glory of God, the beauty of the harps, and yes, to God be the glory. These five doxologies, I would ask the question, how can we have churches alive with fervent worship? Here, in these chapters, God's people are bursting with songs of praise, doxologies and prayers. Why? They are in awe of 
God. That's where it has to begin. Worship. They see the lion lamb exalted and they fall down and worship prostrate before him. I'd have four observations on this whole area of worship this evening. First, the center of our worship. Our focus cannot be personalities or experiences. We've seen all reverence and worship die in churches only to be replaced by entertainment and mysticism. The very nature of heresy is that it creeps in It creeps in under the guise of adding what is lacking in our worship. Christ alone is worthy of our worship. The 24 elders fall down and worship the Lamb. He must be central. Second, and music matters. The singing and praise of the saints. How are those in the Lamb's presence presence worshiping they're singing with harps it may have been a little bit smaller harps as that picture is given to us but they were singing with harps there are these doxologies singing together blending their voices to harmonize together as one body i've always loved reading luther's quotations you know how he takes you one direction and suddenly turns it another and there's a certain almost genius about his uh, art with words. The great reformer marveled that there is nothing on earth without a tone. Even the invisible air sings when hit with a rod. And then he talks about the songs of birds and beasts and how the human voice is incomparably superior to all of those creatures. And he reflects in amazement how there is these great expressions of the human heart given in song. You've probably heard this, uh, these words of Luther on music. Music is second only to the word of God because by it all the emotions are swayed. Nothing on earth is more mighty to make the sad joyful or the joyful sad. To lift up the downcast, mellow the arrogant, balance the exuberant, and appease the vengeful. Then Luther gives what I really believe is an analogy born of genius. Just listen to these words of Luther as he talks about music. He says, but when natural music is trained and polished, then we begin to see with amazement the great and perfect wisdom of God in his wonderful work of music. When one voice takes a simple part and around it sang three Four or five other voices leaping, springing around about, marvelously gracing the simple part like a square dance in heaven with friendly bows, embracings and hearty swings of the partners. He who does not find this an inexpressible miracle of the Lord is truly a clod and not worthy to be considered a man. Yes, music is a glorious gift from God. Psalm 32, and there's many that speak in this fashion. Praise the Lord with a harp. Make music to him on the ten-string lyre. 
Psalm 66, beautiful when it speaks of singing to the Lord of His name. Make His praise glorious. So singing has the power to lift us up, to proclaim our faith with beauty before the Lord. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is not cheap grace. And it should not be sung accompanied by cheap music. The music should intensify the glorious truth that the message conveys. But we must beware. Music can be a dangerous component in worship. It can be so strong that it erases the message of the new song. The strength of the little harps. And music is that it moves us, captures our minds, expresses our feelings. But that's also its danger. So music in itself cannot be trusted. It must be kept constantly in tune with our biblical theology and reform doctrine. Of course, we know that music is not simply entertainment. The new song sung with stringed instruments must never be mere sentimentality. Music should help explain and exegete the truths and scriptures that we are bringing forth. It's not filler before the sermon. But God's gift to carry the message to the people's hearts. Important? Yes, they will be people in your congregation that will be singing a message long after they've forgotten what you preached on. It's a powerful gift from God. The greatness of the Lord and His Christ calls forth praise from His redeemed people. As we praise Him, He is glorified. My prayer is that God would deliver us from shallow ditties and rinky-dink rhythms that rob us of the awe of true worship. And then a third observation concerning worship is here before us the prayers of the saints. Just a few words on these prayers. Along with the music of praise, we have the golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Yes, prayer in the Holy Spirit is an essential part of our worship. Our prayers play a crucial role in the judgments that the Lamb will inflict on His enemies. How does it work? It's God's way, God's means of bringing justice. As we read in Revelation 6, it's through the prayers of the suffering saints on the earth, as we read in Revelation 8, that God sends fiery vengeance upon his enemies. The psalmist says, may the praise of God be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands to inflict vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples. To bind their kings with fetters, their nobles with shackles of iron, to carry out the sentence written against them. 
This is the glory of his saints. I ask, where has the glory of our churches gone? We are to pray that God's kingdom may come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We don't really come just with our wish lists, but we're praying for the advancement of Christ's kingdom and that will bring down the evil one. I believe one of the cries we have, even as as churches gathered here, is that, oh God, pour out upon us as churches a spirit of prayer. I don't know of any book I could recommend more highly than the Psalms as a pattern for us learning how to pray as churches. A fourth observation on worship is the soul of worship. There must be actual worship in our acts of worship. That which is the very soul of our worship. Notice how we go through this whole passage. They are exuberant. They're falling down in worship. They're bowing. There is this wholeheartedness to this whole of worship that's before us. The old Puritan David Clarkson says, what you do in public worship, do it with all your might. Shake off that slothful, indifferent, lukewarm frame of mind that is so odious to God. Don't consider it enough to present your bodies before the Lord. Involving our body in worship is only the carcass of worship. Soul worship is the soul of worship. Those who draw near with their lips only will find God far from them. Not only our lips, mouth, and tongue, but our mind, heart, and affections. Not only our knee, hand, and eye, but our heart, conscience, and memory must be engaged in our worship of God. David not only says, My flesh longs for you, O God, but also my soul thirsts for you. The Lord will draw near when with our whole being, we wait on Him. He will be found when we seek Him with our whole heart. Now, the doctrinal part of this passage that is really crucial for worship. The doctrine of the church. What doctrinal truths are we to be set to proclaim? What are those things are at the very core of making a church balanced, vibrant, a church alive with the truth? What are we to preach when we stand as dying men before dying men? Never sure to preach again. I believe we find the answer for that in the new song. Verses 9 and 10. And I would start with that this has to do with what we would speak of as the international redemption. Is it the very heart of our message? That international redemption. It's a redemption that Jesus Christ brings to pass. He has purchased with his own blood that which is of Every tribe and nation and people and language. The song of the redeemed celebrates the ransom payment Jesus Christ made for God's people from 
every. All tribes, all languages, all peoples, all nations. It's international. The grace of God is worldwide. He speaks all languages. That message is to go to all peoples. This is the church of Jesus Christ. And we need to glory in that. I love this, that the church of Jesus Christ is composed of Jews. Sit down sometime and just write down different groups of people on the whole of the earth. And glory that the church of Jesus Christ is made up of Ethiopians and those from Morocco, those from the Arab world, those that are the Apaches of Arizona, those that are the Carajones of Colombia, those that are the Kamba tribe of Kenya. There's even Swedes and Germans and and Heinz 57 variety Americans, all kinds, Argentines, and, and those from all the different countries of the whole of the face of the earth, from the Aka tribe, from all these different people. He has this wondrous, wondrous redemption from all peoples. International. A balanced church has not only an obligation to take the gospel to its own community, but also, not only, but also to the whole world, to tribes, languages, peoples, nations of the whole planet. But we also want to stop and look and see that it's a particular redemption of our Lord Jesus Christ. What, as theologians, we would call limited atonement. There in this very song of the redeemed, we have a redemption that is particular and personal out of every people. We love the doctrines of grace. As Reformed Baptists, we have a great confession, a great confession of faith that sets forth these truths as the very core of the gospel itself. Being in Greenville, certainly brings back powerful memories for me. I remember how God opened my eyes to these glorious doctrines in the summer of 1966. There was three of us from the university that spent the summer preaching in the open air two or three times a day, even a short visit to the north of Ireland, and how God worked in our hearts and lives living in the Gospel Europa van. And uh, it was during that time that we were, began to order some books, Banner of Truth books. We got a great discount from a fellow in Dublin, Ireland, a missionary. And I can remember we would stay up sometimes all through the night reading in these books, uh, Historical Theology by William Cunningham, and The Plague of Plagues by Ralph Vinning, and how can we forget the body of divinity by Thomas Watson? These things were just like gold to us. We, we wouldn't eat meals so we could buy books. And uh, we really, it was an amazing time. Then we went to Edinburgh. And it was there we purchased a book called The Forgotten Spurgeon. And I can remember we began to read together out loud and reread that book of Ian Murray's. We'd never even heard the name Ian Murray. And we began to read, and uh, we were filled with excitement as we arrived back at the university. 
In contrast, I can still remember David Straub standing at the dormitory, Graves Dormitory, and discouraged and disillusioned because he had traveled that summer among all kinds of churches and he had seen all this decisionalizing. And he was disillusioned with what he saw. We shared with him these truths. He also read what was soon to be the forbidden Spurgeon. <laughs> and the Holy Spirit began really an amazing work. I, I can remember as a monitor on the hall, fellows waking me up in the wee hours of the morning, saying to me, Adams, I can't sleep. I'm so in all that God elected me. Why me? God loves me because of who he is, not because of what I've done. It's sovereign grace. They were amazed. Now, let me tell you a story. Uh, memorable things for me. It was great just to go back and walk around a little bit in these days and uh, remember. Every year, there would be three students that were chosen to preach at baccalaureate. These memorized sermons were to be delivered on Sunday evening before graduation to this gathering of some 7,000. David Straub was chosen as one of the three, and he chose Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10, to climb the mountains of God's electing love and glory in the doctrine of particular redemption. I well recall the three men's name, Steinrock, Strange, and Straub. The sermons were reviewed by the faculty beforehand, and Straub was asked to change some of the words to tone down the doctrine, but he didn't. He preached the truth with power and quoting from the old governor himself, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. I remember this quote so well. We say Christ so died that he infallibly secured the salvation of a multitude that no man can number, who through Christ's death not only may be saved, but are saved, must be saved, and cannot by any, by any possibility run the hazard of being anything but saved. You are welcome to your atonement. You may keep it. We will never renounce ours for the sake of it particular redemption. Now, what I remember was it seemed like for about 16, 17 minutes, I didn't breathe. <laughs> we were praying that unforgettable night 43 years ago. These truths were burned into us as with a hot iron. We came to believe these things and they set our lives on a course. The difficulties, disappointments, discouragements, they have given us balance as men. In David's case, and in the case of others, they gave balance to face death itself. The Holy Spirit set us on that course and on fire with these truths. And these truths... We will never renounce them as they are the gospel itself. But let us remember something, and I think it's very important, that even the doctrines of grace find their balance from the Lamb. The truth overemphasized 
out of proportion and unchecked without the compassion of Christ and his apostles can throw the whole church out of balance. The lamb brings us into balance. The one thing I was above everything and still am is a Romans 9 man. I remember our wedding 43 years ago. I had only one thing I wanted, and that was we'd have a sermon on Romans chapter 9 at the wedding. (laughs) And we did. But how easy it is for us, those of us who are Romans 9 men, to forget how that chapter begins. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. That is the compassion of the Lamb. May God make us more like the Apostle Paul that the doctrines of grace we need to remember, don't need to be expressed with anger and polemics. It really is the glorious message of the electing love of God for sinners such as we are. Just one more thing of that time. In the midst of these tensions, controversies at the university, we had a visitor, Mr. Ernest C. Riesinger. He had become... Uh, intrigued by the number, the volume of books we were ordering. And literally, I would get 40 copies of The Forgotten at 10 o'clock mail, and by 5 o'clock, they'd all be gone. He wanted to know what was going on. So he made a trip from Carlisle to the campus to meet with us, and uh, we lived out a ways. I was married by that time, and, and we had a row of apartments that uh, Ernie later called Geneva Row. <laughs> he exhorted us as students from Second Timothy, and the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. And then, as that unforgettable evening came to a close, He turned his large briefcase full of Banner of Truth books upside down on the floor in the center of our little living room and said, that's all there is, boys. And they rushed to the center of the... (laughs) But he cautioned us. Those who oppose you must gently instruct. You must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. We have much yet to learn from those words. How we thank God for that visit and Ernie's wisdom. Those doctrines have cost us and they will cost you. But we will never renounce them because they are the good news, the gospel itself. Our last point, I want us to focus just for a few moments on The goal of the church. What's the purpose of it all? The church's goal is not to promote its own greatness. It's not to become a 
mega church. The question is not which of the seven churches is the greatest. One of the dangers of pastors gathering together is to compare churches and ask themselves, who is the greatest? Which church is the most balanced? Which church has the most fire? That was the question in, in, in one sense that the disciples were asking on the way to the upper room, wasn't it? Who is the greatest among us? I would ask the question, is Paul's admonition still needed? One that I read often from 2 Corinthians 10, 12. We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves. They are not wise. May God grant us that grace to wash each other's dirty feet and to work together as servants. What are the purposes of the church? The first one that I would note is we find the doxological task of the church in these five doxologies in chapters 4 and 5. This glorious portrait of God and his people is set before us and doxology is what characterizes the whole of this scene. The church exists in the first place to praise God. The glory of God dominates the whole atmosphere of the heavenly church. The ultimate goal of the church lies in a whole other plane. Our churches do not exist primarily to satisfy the needs of humanity, but for the glory of God. Second, the church also exists to bear God's glory the good news to every tribe and language and people and nation. He is the lamb with seven horns, symbolizing his full power and authority. The risen Christ gives the missionary charge based on the fact that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. He is worthy. He is able. Therefore, Go and make disciples of all nations. This is why we work together as an association of churches. We've been summoned by the lion lamb to bear the gospel to every person on the face of the earth. We're called to that. God has raised us up as an association of churches to work together to disciple the nations. Here and abroad, to touch them with the gospel of God's amazing grace. The world may not respond, but we are not to retreat back just to our safe fellowship. We have a calling to bear his glory to the whole of this planet. Long ago, the pioneer missionary, William Carey, Asked the English Association of Churches, are we again going to do nothing? We of Arvka have a sacred privilege to work together to bear that glory to the nations. 
I would ask the question this evening, are there men here who need to step forward, even to take the gospel to other cultures and languages and tribes and people, to risk your life to see that gospel go? Are we going to do nothing again? That question does come to us often. And then third, the church exists to show forth the restoring power of the work of Jesus Christ. The pivotal point of history is the ascension of Christ. He's ascended on high and He pours out His Spirit on that glorious day of Pentecost. It's not that the apostles finally fulfilled all the requirements. It was not what they had done, but that He was ascended on high and He pours out the Holy Spirit upon them. There is that work to be done for His honor and His glory through the death of the risen and ever-living Lamb of God. The plan of God is achieved. All ultimate meaning is found in Him alone. This hymn in verses 9 and 10 tells us that the church is a kingdom of priests and we shall reign on the earth. I believe this vision energizes us. It should be that which we paint before our congregation. God is doing a great and glorious work. It is much more than just the forgiveness of our sins. It's a restoration of all things. It involves the renewal of the entire universe. As Peter says, a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. What is the future of our church, of Christ's church? We will reign on the earth. There is a glory here. Acts, Acts chapter 3, verse 21, Peter tells us Jesus must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. This promise needs to be painted before our people constantly. We will reign on this earth as a kingdom, as a kingdom of priests who live in His presence forever and ever. What a glorious salvation. This is an eschatology that gives us a future so much grander, so much greater, more glorious than anything depicted in some secret rapture novels. We have an eschatology that's full and complete and glorious for God's glory. This is God's eternal plan. Let me just give you a quote from Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones that he puts very well when he spoke of our home of righteousness. Everything will be glorified, even nature itself. And that seems to me to be the biblical teaching about the eternal state, that what we call heaven is life in this perfect world as God intended humanity to live it. When he put Adam in paradise at the beginning, 
Adam fell. And all fell with him. But men and women are meant to live in the body. And will live in a glorified body, in a glorified world. And God will be with them. Yes, he will restore all things. This is a glorious promise. What excitement we have. What energy is given to us to know we win. Christ has conquered. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. The American megachurch has grown through entertainment and personalities. But Christianity is all about the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's all about amazing grace. John would not mislead us into dismissing the need for reviving and refreshing our churches. He gives us a vision of the lion of the tribe of Judah. He gives us a vision of the lamb upon the throne. Here is the portrait of the awesome lamb who opens the scroll to carry out the divine plan for the restoration of creation to its chief end, the glorification of God and enjoyment of God. This is our future. Glorious. Do you remember the illustration that we started with? The man who lost his balance. For us to have balance in our churches, the body of Christ must be vitally connected to our glorious head. The Holy Spirit works in us through the word to cause us to receive his commands. He energizes us to worship him fervently and to turn the world upside down or right side up, maybe. And that happens when Christ is exalted. He draws all men to himself. May this portrait of the lion of the tribe of Judah energize us. When the lamb is glorified, then all creatures everywhere in his domain join in doxology. The lamb had to be slaughtered in order to transform sinful slaves into pure priests who will lead the rest of the universe in praising the triune God who created and redeemed us. Millions upon millions upon millions are already giving that glorious praise to him. May God work in our hearts and lives, in our churches, in such a way that they will know we are churches of doxology to the triune God. And that he, the lion of the tribe of Judah, has conquered. Let's pray together. Our Father, there's nothing that we need in a greater way than to know and experience the reality of the grander glory and greatness of your Son, Jesus Christ, to experience that afresh in our churches. Oh, Lord, may you give us grace to portray to our people the Lion of the tribe of Judah that he has conquered, that he has triumphed. 
We thank you once again, O Lord, that there is no possibility of it all coming to nothing because Jesus Christ has conquered and he is our Lord. We thank you for all those promises that are fulfilled in him and ask for your blessing upon us in his name. Amen.